is America on the Road, winner of the International Automotive Media Conference Gold Medal Award for Radio, and now in its 25th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. A global car maker has pulled the wraps off an exciting 2023 model year crossover utility, and we'll tell you all about it. Plus, we'll have a roundup of some of the best car deals for this month. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at MercuryInsurance.com. Hi, I'm Jack D. Red. With me is co-host Chris Teague. Chris is based in Maine, as you probably know from listening to America on the Road. And Chris, I haven't got the main weather report. I, I did get a little information about what you're doing around the house, which is kind of cool. But uh, tell us what's going on in Maine today. Oh, geez. Well, it's raining today, Jack. <laughs> uh, we've had a, a string of great days, though, so I can't complain too much. Uh, the rain is much needed and helps my garden grow. So uh, maybe I'll send you some uh, tomatoes and, and cucumbers at the end of the season. Ah, sounds delicious. And uh, we had a little tiny bit. A few drops of rain actually touched the ground yesterday as I was walking Austin, our dog, uh, which is very strange for us in Southern California in the middle of summer. I wouldn't say it was anything like a rainstorm, but it was a little bit of rain, so we're happy for that. Uh, so that's what's going on uh, weather-wise uh, across the country as we do America on the Road Cross Country. This week, our special guest is Brent Gruber. He is the Senior Director of Global Automotive for J.D. Power. We'll be talking with him about a just-released a just J.D. Power study on electric vehicle infrastructure and home charging. You and I talked about this uh, quite a bit, Chris. Uh, really, infrastructure is one of the keys to EV success going forward, isn't it? I agree, and it's one of the big reasons, and I think I've even said this here on the show before, is that one of the big reasons why I haven't heavily shopped for one here in Maine just isn't ready. The infrastructure just isn't ready yet. Yeah. In the road test segment, hey, Chris, you're going to take a long look at, uh, well, describe the vehicle, or at least tell us what vehicle you're going to be talking about a little later in the show. The large and in charge uh, Toyota Sequoia. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to be talking about the 2021 GMC Acadia. This is a theme show of SUVs that end in the letters I and A. Well, not really, but uh, we're, we're covering two vehicles that happen to have that going for them. This is what writers do in their spare moments as they look at stupid things like that. Uh, before we look at any of those, though, here's some, some of the latest automotive news. We tease the fact that there is a 2023 that we can talk about, and it is the Kia Sportage. And uh, the Sportage was one of the first compact utilities. I happened to actually do some PR for Kia back in the day and uh, helped uh, introduce and, and uh, publicize the Sportage. This is a long time ago. This is back in the 90s, I think. It has been a stalwart in that category, but a little too small, I think, uh, versus, the, say, the RAV4 and Honda CRV. They're going to remedy that for 2023. Uh, it's going to be a bigger vehicle that's going to be essentially right in the middle of that market. It's the uh, fifth generation of the Kia Sportage. As I say, larger in overall size, which will help it out. Um, so there'll be more passenger room and luggage space. That kind of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? There are likely to be hybrid and plug-in hybrid powertrains. Uh, Kia didn't um, describe those in detail. They did describe the conventional engines in a little more detail. It will have a terrain mode or terrain mode driving settings. So there is a at least a, a hint that there, there it will be more off-road uh, oriented than the current Kia Sportage, which isn't very off-road or oriented at all. Back in the day, the Sportage actually did have quite a bit of off-road kind of uh, chops to it. Uh, it will have the uh, availability of an electric control continuously damping suspension. And the basic engine we're going to see in the United States is a 1.6 liter um, turbocharged engine with a seven-speed dual-clutch automatic, which is interesting to me. What's your take on the dual-clutch in a vehicle like the Kia Sportage, Chris? They've done a really good job with their dual-clutches in the past. That you know, I tested a Kia Soul a while back that had the same uh, transmission, maybe an eight-speed, but it was still a dual-clutch. But uh, I think it adds a, a level of engagement that you just can't get with a CVT, and you know, it works well with the, the turbo engines. Yeah, it's interesting, I think. Uh, 
There is a sportiness to the dual clutch, absolutely. I think in terms of drivability, uh, just every day, some people have some objections to uh, dual clutches. They're not as smooth as a, a torque converter, a conventional automatic transmission. So it's interesting that uh, Kia continues to stick with the dual clutch, but uh, we'll see that. Of course, it's going to have the, the 2023 Sportage will have a uh, big displays inside. It's going to have two 12-inch wide displays installed side by side. One, of course, to have the, the basic instrumentation and the other for the infotainment system. So we're going to see a lot of that. So I, it'll be exciting. I, the 2022, I think, is a, is a particular bargain, but uh, certainly the 2023 Kia Sportage, uh, all new, um, will be uh, an even better value, I think, when it comes out. And it's, it's going to be a while before we see it in the United States, but uh, it'll roll along. So... We've got that going for us. Do you have a news piece for us, Chris? I do. This is a, a study that I, I mentioned to you earlier about Edmunds. Uh, this is uh, looking at used car prices and particularly cars with over uh, 100,000 miles. Uh, apparently, the uh, their study, their data that they collect from dealerships that they work with showed that uh, the prices for vehicles with over 100,000 miles climbed almost to $16,500 in June 2021. Uh, that's compared to just $12,600, a little bit more than that last year. They say it's a 31% increase uh, and is the highest average transaction price that they've ever seen for vehicles with over 100,000 miles. Uh, we've been talking about used, cars price, used car prices for, well, over a year now since the pandemic started with uh, you know production delays and now the chip shortage driving demand to the used market. But uh, this is definitely, uh, I won't say alarming, but it's super interesting to see uh, just how many people are out shopping for high mileage vehicles these days. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that they could even collect data on this because most people wouldn't even buy and our dealers wouldn't sell, wouldn't even attempt to sell vehicles that had over 100,000 miles on them. But uh, certainly times have changed and the, the shortage of vehicles out there, the apparent shortage of both uh, used and new vehicles has prompted a lot of people to consider vehicles that they probably wouldn't consider otherwise. And I would say at the same time, there's plenty of vehicles out there with 100,000 miles on them that have plenty of useful life left in them. And maybe those are particular bargains. I'm not sure about spending fifteen, sixteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 for a vehicle with 100,000 miles on it. But uh, I think there's some value in that. Yeah, and their Edmunds data is showing that they're selling quickly, too. Uh, they sat on the lot for an average of 30.5 days uh, in June 2021 compared to almost 38 days uh, last year. And I suppose if you really wanted to dig into it, uh, Edmonds didn't, but if you really wanted to dig into it, you could probably find some insights on the credit market too, uh, with a lot of financing heading to the high mileage vehicles where it might not have been so easy to finance them a year ago. But uh, I won't speculate there. I think it's just an interesting angle that uh, we could look at maybe next time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to uh, talk a little bit about a new introduction this week, the 2022 Infiniti QX60. Uh, was introduced uh, a little earlier this week, and uh, we look forward to that. Uh, it has much in common, <laughs> a ton in common, uh, with the new 2022 Nissan Pathfinder that we have talked about at length on the show, and uh, so we expect it to be a, a very, very good vehicle, and uh, properly upscale, of course, in the Infinity tradition. It will also have a giant display, a 12.3-inch uh, interactive display with wireless Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. It's funny that uh, that's what I talk about as the lead piece on that, but that's uh, one of the most important things to, to a lot of people about it. Seven seats will be standard in this vehicle, and uh, it will be introduced uh, this fall. So we're going to see that in the marketplace very, very soon. Uh, let me give you the base price here. Uh, the base price uh, for the lowest uh, cost QX60 from Infinity is $46,850. So right up there around 50K and properly luxurious. And uh, you can get one that will go up uh, toward the uh, almost $70,000 if it were optioned uh, up quite a bit. So that's coming. And I also teased the fact that there are, uh, we're going to talk about best car deals. So let me give you some of them uh, quickly before we have to get out of this segment. Volkswagen, as you know from listening to America on the Road, is introducing its battery electric ID4 compact SUV. And here's the lease deal on it. And I'm not necessarily a big proponent of lease deals, 
But in this case, with electric technology still kind of new, maybe this is a way to dip your toe into electric without uh, the commitment of a purchase. Uh, $379 per month for 36 months. And you pay about $3,500 due at signing. Uh, that signing payment is always something that I, I question, but this seems like a pretty good deal. What's your take on dipping your toe into EVs with the ID4, Chris? I think the ID4, especially with the deals, is a great way to do it. You know, I mean, uh, the all-wheel drive version for me would be a necessity, but that doesn't come out until later this year. But I think it looks good. The tech looks nice. Uh, the reviews have been positive. I haven't had a chance to drive one yet, but uh, it could be a good way to get into uh, the space if you're looking to do it at less than, you know, Tesla prices. Right. And I have had a chance to drive one uh, fairly recently, and we will review that on an upcoming show. So I won't tell you too much, but I think it's a good buy. So that gives you a little hint about how I feel about it. Two quick other really good buys, I think, that are out there. If you're looking for a sedan, uh, the Sonata midsize sedan from Hyundai and the Elantra compact sedan, also from Hyundai, Here's the deal on them. 90 days of deferred payments. That's either good or bad, depending on how you look at it. I don't think it's bad at all to put off payments for 90 days. You're going to have to pay sometime, so it's you know postponing the inevitable. But it also has 0% financing for up to 60 months. So that's using somebody else's money at no cost for five years is a pretty good thing. And you get a $500 discount. So those are really good vehicles. Uh, and I think that's a really good deal on both of those vehicles. What's your quick take on that, Chris? I totally agree. Uh, if you're in the market, the, those probably won't be beat for a while. Yes. So when we come back, we will be road testing. Chris will be testing the Toyota Sequoia, and I will be taking a look at the GMC Acadia. So stay with us for that. Thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Chris Teague, Jack D. Red back with you. And it is road test time right here on America on the Road, one of our favorite segments, because we talk about the vehicles we've driven in the past week or so. And Chris, you were driving a, a rather large SUV, at least large for your family, uh, the Toyota Sequoia. Why don't you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. We, we talk about the size of this thing, but with four kids and uh, we actually got the dog out and, and hauled some stuff from the garden center. It actually fills up pretty quickly uh, with, with all those people and all the gear and, and stuff. But uh, this is a 2021 Toyota Sequoia. Uh, this particular uh, model that I tested is called the Nightshade model. It's a new addition for 2021. In fact, it's the only change that was made to the Sequoia for 2021. Um, it slots in between the almost $61,000 limited model and the almost $66,000 TRD Pro model. Um, and it's got features like 20 inch black wheels, black dark, I'm sorry, darkened outside trim, uh, black leather. And this one came in one of the exclusive uh, colors, which is actually called Wind Chill Pearl. It's kind of a white color, really nice color uh, combination for the vehicle. But uh, I digress. Uh, the big complaint with the Sequoia that I and many others have had is that it is the same basic configuration that the vehicle has been in for over a decade now. You look at a Sequoia from 2021, it looks strikingly similar to a to Sequoia from 2012, 2013. And for some people that's endearing. You know, I don't really mind it so much. However, comparing it back to back with vehicles like, uh, you know, the Ford uh any of the Ford, the new full-size SUVs from Ford or GM, uh, it just, it feels old. And I don't know how you feel about that, Jack. I think some people probably lean on that, uh, saying that the Sequoia is bulletproof, and that's probably true. Um, and you might not even mind so much if you didn't drive it back to back with other ones. But what's your your thought on the, the age of this thing? I think you're spot on uh, because the, the the segment has progressed, right? I mean, the, the Chevy Tahoe and the Ford Expedition are better now than they were 10 years ago. And it seems like the Sequoia has largely been standing still. I mean, it was a really good vehicle 10 years ago, and it's still a good vehicle. I, st I still think there are good reasons to choose the Sequoia uh, over others. But it, it strikes me for one thing, and I'm going to say this uh, probably about the GMC Acadia when I talk about it in, in a little bit. It strikes me as maybe a little small for the segment now. The interior space is not quite what it would be if you got one of the domestics that I talked about. And that, that's a big deal in this kind of segment, isn't it? I agree. And I think 
you know, I'll expand on that by saying it's not so much the size. So, you know, yes, Sequoia is big, it's giant, but it's how the space is used. So uh, if you look at the, uh, you mentioned the Tahoe or the Expedition and all those those vehicles, they've made use of the space by creating small item storage cubbies all over the place. Uh, there are nice dividers in the center console to help break things up, uh, you know, and all sorts of other storage spaces in the Toyota. Just because of its age, I guess, mostly because of its age, doesn't have that same clever sort of division of the space. So what you end up with is a large area with, you know, kind of not a lot of options to put stuff places. And uh, for some people, that's fine. With kids, you know, my, my daughter's junkets that they drag around with them everywhere were rolling around under the seats. In fact, this morning before I gave the vehicle back, I pulled out some pins and a hair clip and some other things that uh, would really have done well with some cubbies. But uh, I digress. So the, the, the Sequoia is powered by a 381 horsepower V8 with a six-speed automatic transmission. Uh, it comes standard with rear-wheel drive. My tester had four-wheel drive. Um, did not get to use it, uh, unfortunately, off-road. Uh, but it does, especially in TRD Pro uh, trim, handle itself quite well on the trails. I, I don't think anybody would do uh, rock crawling or anything like that in a vehicle of this size. But uh, for its heft and for its weight, it moves around, you know, quite well. The V8 engine sounds nice. It's got a nice throaty growl, but, you know, fuel economy suffers there. Um, and it doesn't handle all that well because it's you know, a full-size SUV that, that's more like a truck than anything else. Uh, that said, there's plenty of cargo space in the back um, at six feet tall. I had no conflict with second row passengers, even in large car seats, or uh, there was an adult at one time that rode behind me. Uh, plenty of room in the captain's chair. So really no complaints about the space or how it drives. I think, you know, the age shows mostly and the technology. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, the configuration of the interior, the touchscreen is is perfectly clear and, and very nice. I think it is, uh, let's see, it is an, a seven inch touchscreen. Sorry, I was looking at my notes there. It's got Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, but it's so far away from the driver's seat that it's hard to control. Um, even with my reach, I had to lean out of the seat to reach the uh, tuning knob to change the radio stations and things like that. So, you know, I think the upgrades or the the overdue overhaul that will be coming hopefully in the next year or two for the vehicle will remedy some of these things while leaving some of the the bigger things that we like, you know, the size, the capability in place. And you are six feet tall, so uh, leaning that ha- having to lean that far to uh, reach the radio controls. There's something about uh, Toyota and their infotainment screens. They all, they seem to catch a lot of glare. Typically, I think I noticed that in the Sequoia when I was driving it, and they seem to be quite a reach sometimes. But uh, all in all, I think the Sequoia is a good vehicle, so uh, worthy of a look. Not quite as large as the Expedition and Tahoe. Uh, and you might like that. Uh, it might be good for you, and you might like that Toyota quality as well. So uh, reasons to look at it and reasons to consider others as well. And I say that that probably uh, is a good way to look at the GMC Acadia. For the right family, and I think this is a family vehicle, it can be a good vehicle. It could be a good buy. Uh, at the same time, for a larger family, it's probably uh, not the best buy. There are probably other midsize SUVs that would outdo it, and size matters here. Uh, the Acadia is five inches shorter in overall length than the Ford Explorer and the Chevy Traverse. The Traverse, of course, of the same family as uh, the GMC Acadia. And that five extra inches means a lot. <laughs> you know, that's more cargo space, more people space. So if you're interested in a five-passenger SUV, the Acadia will offer you that option and a ton of cargo space. If you're looking for a seven-passenger vehicle, and you really want to use that third row a lot, I would look elsewhere. I would look to those vehicles I talked about or vehicles like the Honda Pilot or, or the new Nissan Pathfinder, for example. The good news in the Acadia is in many configurations, it has second row captain's chairs. A lot of people like that. Uh, that's much more comfortable than a bench seat. It keeps the kids separated if you put two kids in the captain's chairs. So that's probably a good thing. It gives you a walkthrough to the third row. The Acadia is available in five different trim levels. Usually when I'm recommending a trim level, I will recommend one of the middle or lower to middle level trims and maybe with some options on it. But in the Acadia, I really recommend the top trim, the Denali trim. And the reason being is you can't get all the good stuff in the Acadia unless you buy the Denali. You can't buy, you can't get adaptive ride control. You can't get the surround vision camera system. 
And you can't even get uh, adaptive cruise control unless you have the Denali. So uh, that's certainly the one to get, I would believe. The up-level engine and the one in the Denali is a 310 horsepower, 3.6 liter V6. That happens to be the exact same engine that's in the Chevy Traverse. And it has a nine-speed automatic transmission. I like the looks of the Acadia a lot. I think it's a very sharp-looking vehicle. And the interior is also very, very nice. Uh, well-finished. And if you're a, a second-row captain's chairs kind of person, or that fits your family uh, unit as, as a five-person family. It wasn't so great for the NERAD family because somebody was uh, relegated into the third row if we had two captain's chairs in the rear. But uh, for a, a family with two kids, I think uh, it's pr probably quite a good one. What's your take on the Acadia, Chris? You know, I think it's funny, even with two kids, one of the kids always insists on riding in the way back, we call it. So we sometimes end up with kids, even in our Volvo in the third row, even though we only have two of them. But, you know, I think I like the, the Acadia styling, the the, the update kind of took away the super square wheel arches and, and smoothed things out. It looks great. And uh, I agree with you on captain's chairs. It kind of creates your own, uh, for lack of better you were demilitarized zone between the two kids. It keeps their hands to themselves and keeps them separated. But uh, all in all, I like the way I like the way it looks. I like the way that GMC packages uh, their options, although I wish some features were standard, like more safety features of the lowest level. But agree with you on the top trim there. Uh, I drove one a little while ago and thought it was very comfortable. It didn't spend a lot of time with it, but um, I can see the positives that you're stating and agree with them. Well, very, very good. So I think we have two vehicles that are the right vehicles for the right families and might be avoided by others, uh, maybe with, uh, you know, larger family units, right? With more kids or, or larger kids. Or if you want to use, in the Acadia's case, if you want to use the third row a lot, uh, I would look to other vehicles that have a roomier third row, for example. Uh, but for uh, a family of four or five, Quite a good vehicle for about $50,000 uh, properly equipped. So two good vehicles. When we come back, we will be taking your listener questions. So stay with us for that. We're so glad you're with us right here on America on the Road. This is Jack Dred along with Chris Teague, and we're happy you've joined us. Thanks so much for being with us. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Chris T. Jackie Red back with you in his question and answer time. We'd love to take your listener questions. It's very easy to reach us with your listener question. Just send them to editor at drivingtoday.com. That's editor at drivingtoday.com. Of course, drivingtoday.com is our sister website to America on the Road, and uh, we enjoy that relationship very, very much. So, Check that out. Chris, I think you have a question for us that came in during the week. What is that question? I do. This question comes from Jennifer in sunny San Diego, which is where I wish I might be right now. Um, she asks, uh, she says, last week on the show, you talked about lemon laws and autom automakers buying back vehicles that have problems. How does that actually work, Jack? Well, it works differently in every state. <laughs> That's the one thing I can uh, put out there unequivocally. And so you have to learn your state's lemon laws. Uh, and there are lemon laws in virtually every state in the union. I think that's 50 states, if I'm counting correctly these days. And like I say, the regulations differ somewhat. The basic premise of a lemon law is to protect people against vehicles, and these are new vehicles, uh, that are sold to them and then just don't function properly and can't be fixed. You know, hence the term lemon. And it takes multiple trips to the dealership, and each state has its own regulations on how many trips you have to make to the dealership, how many attempts the dealer has to make on the car to fix it before it can qualify as a lemon law, as a lemon law vehicle. And so I would say in, in many instances, it's worth your while and worth the expenditure, because it's going to cost you some money, to hire a lemon law attorney just to get the uh, the basics on this and and go through the process. The goal is if you can't get your car fixed, you bought a new car, and every make has this. <laughs> you know, some of them just are not built particularly well. Uh, a very small percentage, a small number, but they go out into the marketplace and then they just don't work, and they uh, largely can't be fixed. There is either some design flaw, some part flaw that can't be fixed, something about them. Uh, that prevents them from operating properly. 
and then car companies will actually buy those cars back from the consumer who bought them. So that's your recourse. It's a pretty good recourse once you get there, but getting there, as you can imagine, Chris, <laughs> it's kind of problematic to have to go back to the dealer over and over again and not have a car uh, while you're trying to get this vehicle that you bought new fixed. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I went through something similar, although not under Lemon Law, with a used car uh, years ago, and it's just a total pain. You know, the the dealer in some cases will do just enough to satisfy or try to fix the issue just so that they can, you know, say that they made an effort. You know, they really don't want to buy that vehicle back, but. Uh, the laws exist for a reason to protect consumers. Uh, so hopefully you're able to take advantage or at least get through the process if you need to. Yeah, your first, uh, probably the first thing you should do is do some online research about it. Probably your uh, state's secretary of state office or your uh, Department of Motor Vehicles, depending on what your state has and, and who is regulating car dealers and those transactions. There could be a consumer ombudsman uh, in uh, various states uh, that can help you with that. But getting that information is important. This happens frequently, more frequently than you would guess. And there is a remedy, and the remedy is buying that defective new car back. Certainly that's the last recourse. It's the last thing the dealer wants to do. It might be the last thing you want to do. Although if you have trouble with a vehicle and it has to go back to the dealership for service over and over and over again, uh, you're probably just as well rid of it. So um, it's something that you should pay attention to. It is possible to get this done. On the other hand, as you talk about, Chris, with a used car, it's even a more difficult problem and there are no lemon laws to help you in that situation. Yeah, we ended up, uh, this was, you know, it was with CarMax and I don't think it was their fault, but uh, it, we went back and forth many, many times and finally ended up getting it fixed. Thanks to their policy, you know, we were able to get it done. But there was there was no protection. So if they hadn't agreed to do that, then we would have just been out on our, on our bum fixing the car out of pocket. Right. There are some remedies uh, if you can represent or if you can state the case and maybe prove the case that the dealer has misrepresented the car, did not reveal problems with the car that they knew about before they sold it. But that's pretty darn difficult to prove. Uh, so I would say, as, as we talk about so frequently on the show, do a ton of research ahead of time. If you're buying a used car, understand the return policies of the dealership or the entity from which you buy that car. Then go about your business uh, with that information in mind as opposed to uh, just crossing your fingers and hoping. Yeah, just real quick, I'll say that even though it might not catch everything, a pre-purchase inspection is worth its weight in gold. If you're buying a used car, have it inspected by somebody other than the shop that you're buying it from, even if you love the person you're buying it from. Absolutely true. And maybe even more so if you love the person, uh, quite literally, <laughs> if they're a family member or something like that, because uh, that can uh, you don't want to screw up the family dynamics of buying from your cousin and then hating your cousin for the next 40 years and never wanting to go to another wedding where that cousin is, right? Uh, so you want to avoid that. When we come back, we will be talking with Brent Gruber, who is the Senior Director of Global Automotive for J.D. Power. They just released a study on electric vehicle infrastructure, home charging, people's satisfaction with those kind of things. So we will be talking with him about that. So stay with us for that. With Chris Teague, this is Jack Nierad with you. And we thank you so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jack Nierad with you. And we have a very special guest for you right now. His name is Brent Gruber. He is the Senior Director of Global Automotive for J.D. Power, our friends at J.D. Power. Uh, Brent, number one, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Jack. Interesting thing that we're going to talk about today. I think it's very interesting. We're talking about electric vehicles. Certainly, uh, electric vehicles are on everybody's lips. But a key thing about them is the ability, uh, and it's very different than with gasoline cars, the ability to charge your vehicles, essentially refuel it at home. And you've done a study about that. Uh, talk to us a bit about why home charging is uh, so important to the whole EV outreach going forward. We you know, started doing electric vehicle research um, years ago. And in, in recent years, we saw a need to focus specifically on the charging aspect. So a lot of what we had done and seen in years past was really focused on you know, how we get people to consider 
purchasing electric vehicles. But we really wanted to kind of flip the script and look at it from an ownership perspective and what it was like living with um, electric vehicles. And when we looked at that, um, we you know, certainly realized that charging is a dominant aspect of owning an electric vehicle. And so we developed a home charging study as well as a public charging study because we really wanted to understand what that experience was, but then also how we could provide information that would help industry stakeholders improve that experience. Because to your point, home charging is a very important aspect of owning an electric vehicle. In fact, our data shows that more than 80% of electric vehicle owners use home charging as their primary means of electric vehicle charging. And so it was really important for us to you know, kind of understand that context and then identify you know, what, what can we do, what can we show that would improve that experience. You know, a lot of people think about electric vehicles as just a, a straight-up substitute for cars, and they expect them to uh, maybe expect them, uh, logically expect them, I guess, to act like a uh, gasoline-powered car does and have those attributes, but they really don't. And uh, the the whole charging thing is the key difference, I think. The the fact that with a gasoline car, you can fill it up with gas. You essentially has have unlimited range as long as you uh, can get to a filling station and can spend five <laughs> minutes to fill it up with gas. But EVs are very different. Talk a bit about that, would you? Yeah, they are very different. And I think, you know, you know sometimes they're, they're looked at as, as having, um, uh, you know, their own set of challenges. But I look at it as having, uh, you know, their own advantages. So there, there's certainly a, a difference between you know, an internal combustion engine powered vehicle and an electric vehicle and the charging aspect is uh, a big component of that. Um, but electric vehicles provide um, you know, some, some cost savings, right? I mean, you know, you're not going to the gas station um, you know, on a regular basis. You're not filling up on a regular basis. You're charging at home for the most part. And that's a very cost-effective way of charging your electric vehicle. And so, you know, people, you know, need to certainly recognize that electric vehicles are very different. They need to understand the differences in, in how that may differ from their previous experiences owning an ICE vehicle. You know, that comes down to how are they going to charge it? Are they going to have the right um, you know, charging equipment and charging at the right level because there's differing levels of, of charging capacity, you know, understanding sort of the limitations of that range and kind of planning and some forethought around that. So those are really the, the biggest, um, you know, differentiators with owning an electric vehicle. But like I said, you know, they do offer some considerable benefits. And I think that's What's really enticing for consumers to consider these vehicles, not look at necessarily the differences and the limitations, but the advantages that they offer. Right. And the advantages are, are several. And, and certainly one of them is just on a cost per mile uh, for mm -hmm. refueling kind of basis. Uh, they can be significantly less expensive than a gasoline internal combustion engine uh, vehicle. Yeah. So that's a plus. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't tell you how many comments I've read from from respondents in our studies saying how you know thrilled they are with the uh, the, the cost and, and value proposition that electric vehicles provide um, but also the the reduced maintenance um, you know the 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 ability to visit a dealer or service facility less frequently is really um, exciting a lot of electric vehicle owners Right. And at the same time, there is a, a major difference. And one of that is when you buy a gasoline car, you don't think at all about how do I prepare my home to uh, make this gasoline car uh, more efficient for me or, or work mm -hmm. for me. At most, you might think, where, where am I going to park it? Right. But with an electric vehicle, yep. preparing your home or preparing where you live uh, to do home charging is a fairly important aspect of the whole ownership experience, or, or at least can enhance it. Uh, talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, that's one of the key challenges we see with um, the electric vehicle space right now is the availability of information and communicating um, you know, the, the, the usage of electric vehicles to potential consumers and even new 
new owners, you, know, you do have to prepare a little bit and you have to plan a little bit. You know, if you're charging at home, which most people are, um, you know, it, it's it's oftentimes advantageous for those owners to upgrade their electrical systems to take advantage of faster charging capacity. So at a very base level, we call it level one charging, and that's essentially just kind of a plug and play. You plug into a standard outlet, but that's a really slow charge. And then you offer the opportunity to them to upgrade that through level one charging, but that takes some planning and sometimes some infrastructure updates. And that's where consumers really need to have a good sense for the benefits to them for upgrading because there's costs associated with that. And you know that's a source of dissatisfaction because a lot of electric vehicle owners are purchasing these vehicles and then feeling like they've, they've been hit with uh, unexpected costs after the fact. So we need to do a better job as an industry of educating consumers on that process of upgrading and what all that may entail. And then not only that, but what incentives may be available to them to do so, because there's a great amount of, um, you know, uh, confusion around the incentives that are available to consumers to help them make that upgrade. Right. And that upgrade generally uh, consists of uh, doing some rewiring of your home, uh, you know, getting an outlet that uh, has higher voltage electricity to it. Uh, and it can be fairly expensive. If You know, I, I as a journalist have uh, tested a lot of electric vehicles and using level one charging, uh, oftentimes it will take well more than overnight to fully recharge mm -hmm. the batteries. And that's not a particularly good experience. And I think you've discovered that in the study that you've done, the EV home charging study, that level one charging just is uh, at best a neutral or maybe a dissatisfier for people who own electric vehicles. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a great experience for most people. Um, you know, we certainly do recognize that in some instances, it may make sense for some folks to use level one charging. But for the vast majority, it really does pay to upgrade to a level two charging. And there could be some costs associated with doing so, like you said, but there are incentives out there that are available um, to consumers to make that upgrade. A lot of utility companies are offering incentives and uh, a lot of municipalities are offering incentives. And so there is uh, re there are resources available to consumers to make those those upgrades. And it really is a drastically improved experience. So you know you go from taking uh, a vehicle that may require a full day to charge to you know getting a sufficient charge in a matter of hours. And you're really improving that experience when you're shortening that time. Yeah, I think when you can get to a situation where uh, you come home at night, uh, whether you're coming to your apartment or you're coming to a house and, and putting the car in your garage, you plug it in and in the morning you there is no doubt that you have a full charge and, and maybe you have, depending on the, the vehicle, something like 200 miles of range, let's say. Uh, that's way more than sufficient uh, for the typical driving in a typical day. So that's that's a pretty good experience. Basically, you're you're starting out with the equivalent of a full tank of gas every day uh, that you get up and, and go to the garage. And, and that's a very positive experience, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And I kind of liken it to charging your, your mobile phone overnight, right? You know, at night, I plug in my, my phone and it charges overnight. And in the morning, I wake up and it has a full charge. You know, it's very similar to that process. And, and that's convenient. It's easy for consumers to you know, plug their car in at the uh, end of the night and wake up in the morning and have that full charge in that range. Um, like you said, there's, you know, a pretty high ranges on a lot of these electric vehicles today, and that's sufficient for most people. So I think there's a little bit of a, a misperception around electric vehicles in terms of ranges and limitations and charging, because for the vast majority of, of owners, it is a pretty simple process where you are simply just plugging it in at the end of the night and getting that overnight charge, and that's providing you with a with an adequate range and and charge capacity um, at the beginning of the day, and and that will get you through. And then, you know, you top up as needed. So, you know, this whole notion of limitations of ranges and 
um, you know, the uh, lack of availability for public charging stations, it really isn't as critical of an issue as it seems to be when you factor in the, the predominant usage of electric vehicles and how consumers are using those. Right. And if you rely on public charges, and maybe some of this is covered in the study, why don't you talk about the, the uh, experience if you're relying on public charging versus at-home charging um, to charge your EV? I've I, I got to believe that uh, there's a lot of difference in satisfaction there. There is. Yeah, there's there's certainly a, a, a contingency of folks who, um, you know, can't charge at home. Right. In in the study, we have a lot of folks who live in you know multi-unit dwellings, apartments and, and so forth. And so you know, they don't have access to that home charging capability that many do. And so they may be much more reliant on the public charging infrastructure. And that's not an ideal experience. When we look at the total ownership experience, the ownership of owning an electric vehicle, the least satisfying aspect of owning an electric vehicle is the availability of public charging. So if you do need to rely on public charging, um, you know, there's a great deal of dissatisfaction there because it's not necessarily readily available. There are differing technologies. You can't just go charge at any available station. Uh, you know, there are stations for different uh, types. And so you know, those people that can't charge at home have to rely on that public charging network, and that's not always an ideal situation for them. So that does lead to, uh, you know, a lot of dissatisfaction. Yeah, I imagine it's far from ideal. I, I, I see, I, I live fairly close to a, a Tesla supercharger station, and I see people sitting in that lot all the time spending X amount of time, it's, I would say, probably a minimum of half an hour at a time, just sitting in their car doing stuff while their their car is charging. And, geez, I'd, I'd hate to do that several times a week. I, it would just be such a, a, a large time suck uh, for me. And you, you probably found that uh, in in the survey that you did, in the study that you did. Yep, exactly. And, and so you know, that's why we wanted to focus separately on a public charging study, too, which we have coming out here in August, you know, we fully recognize that consumers do need to charge in public. There's a couple different, um, you know, types of, of people uh, charging in public. You know, there are those who are going on road trips, and then there are those who are just, you know, utilizing local public charging facilities. And the key to that latter group is really making sure that it's a convenient location for them. So to your point, if someone's using that public charging station and they're you know, kind of there twiddling their thumbs for a period of time, are there amenities nearby that they can utilize? Can they go shop? Can they go grab a bite to eat? Um, you know, making sure that those things are available to them because those are the kinds of things that do improve the public charging experience. So if you have to rely on that, it's, it's a fairly convenient aspect, you know, driving home from work on the way home, I need to stop and pick up some groceries. You know, I can plug into the public charging station at the grocery store, top up my battery, and then I'm on my way. That's a convenient experience. And so from a public uh, charging um, you know, standpoint, that's what we're, we're hoping to get to, adding that convenience to the consumer. Right. We're talking with Brent Gruber. He is Senior Director of Global Automotive at J.D. Power about a study they've done on home charging. What are some of the, the key learnings? Well, one of the things I, I'm curious about is how utilities play into all of this because mm -hmm. the utility landscape across the country is very, very different. I think uh, gas stations mm -hmm. are much more standardized than say the utilities and how they deal with electric vehicles are across the country. What's your experience about that? What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, the utility companies certainly play a very critical role in this. Um, you know, one of our primary goals with the research we're doing is to advance the, the industry, advance the consumer experience. And you know, looking at this, it's very clear that there are a number of stakeholders who are involved in this process and have um, you know, some some stake in, in improving this uh, experience for consumers and utilities are certainly one of those. You know, it's it's a challenge for the utility company to ensure that there is a stable supply of electricity. Uh, I think we saw it last winter with, you know, cold weather in Texas and the burden that it can put on the, 
the electrical infrastructure. And you know, we're starting to see it now in California with high temperatures and, and the impact that that's putting on the electrical system. Um, so you know, there, there's really a critical role for the utility companies to play in terms of ensuring that there is stable electricity, first and foremost, but secondarily, making sure that consumers are aware of what's available to them from an incentive standpoint to maximize charging in the home environment. And what I mean by that is a lot of utility companies offer incentives to their customers to make these upgrades. So, you know, we talked about how it's a very low satisfying experience using level one charging. It's much more satisfying using an upgraded level two charging. Utility companies oftentimes provide incentives to make that upgrade. You know, one of the uh, findings that I found rather alarming within our study was the fact that about half of all level one users were not aware that their utility company provided an incentive to help them make the upgrade to level two. So that's a concerning uh, finding to me because we know there's a drastically improved experience going from level one to level two. And so the utility companies, they need to step up and ensure that these incentives are not just available, but widely communicated to their consumers or their, their um, you know, customers. And so they play a critical role in stabilizing the electrical supply and then making um, these these uh, incentives available to consumers. It's, it's different, like you said, from region to region, different uh, utility companies have different programs. There's not a lot of commonality, but I think that they owe it to themselves to look at those utility companies that offer these um, advantages and offer these incentives and leverage that um, within their markets to to help drive electric vehicle growth. What are some takeaways, Brent, uh, from the uh, from the study from the EV home charging study uh, that consumers should be aware of? If you're a consumer, what what can you tell them? What can you tell consumers uh, uh, that you've learned from the study that could be helpful to them as they consider an electric vehicle? Yeah, first and foremost is you know, the charging level. Um, just because that's such a, a big source of dissatisfaction, you know, as we mentioned, you know, level one charging is really a dissatisfying experience. Um, you know, understand what it will take for you to make that upgrade from level one to level two, if that is um, the right path for you. And I think that's a conversation that consumers need to have with their dealers, I think that the selling dealer certainly understands the local market and what incentives are available to them by the utility companies or by their municipalities. And so first and foremost, consumers need to be aware of their situation in upgrading from level one to level two and then what resources are available to them just because that's such a big boost in, in satisfaction. Um, and then secondarily, I think a key finding for those who are maybe considering electric vehicles is you know, the reality versus perception. And you know, the perception is we hear a lot about range limitations and long charging times, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, with my, my ICE vehicle, I'm not going to the gas station and filling up every day. You know, it's no different for an electric vehicle. I'm not charging from zero to 100 every day. Oftentimes, it's a, a top-up situation where, you know, they're boosting their charging level up uh, a, a little bit. And so, you know, you don't necessarily need to have that full charge on a, on a frequent basis. You know, you can have the convenience of plugging it in at night, getting enough juice overnight where you have sufficient range in the morning. I think that's a, a big factor for um, those considering electric vehicles to be aware of, that it's it's not necessarily this um, you know, doom and gloom, limitations, um, you know, range anxiety, and um, you know, public station availability and finding those. It, it's, not the, it's not the concern that it appears to be. 
Right. I think there's a lot of uh, happy talk about EVs and there's a lot of very negative talk. And I think probably yep. as, as you're identifying, the answer is somewhere in between and having That's a right. realistic uh, expectation about what EVs pluses and minuses are, I think is, is very important to uh, overall uh, satisfaction and adoption of EVs going forward. Exactly. Yep. And I can't, you know, emphasize enough the role of the dealership in in this process and communicating with the consumer, understanding what their individual needs are. You know, how are they planning to use this electric vehicle? Um, they can really kind of tailor the experience around the consumer's needs. And they're a very critical link in this process of getting you know, electric vehicles, um, you know, to, to proliferate and, and, you know, helping with uh, consideration of electric vehicles and advancing the technology. Very, very good point. Well, Brent Gruber, uh, Senior Director of uh, Global Automotive at J.D. Power, we appreciate you being with us. Uh, I, I learned a lot. I appreciate you uh, chatting with me. Certainly, Jack. I appreciate your time and appreciate you having me on the show. Thanks very much and stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. And that was our interview with Brent Gruber, who is Senior Director of Global Automotive for J.D. Power. Really interesting stuff. I mean, if EVs are going to work uh, for the, the bulk of people in the country, we have to have that infrastructure. We have to be able to do home charging of the vehicle. So uh, interesting to hear what he had to say about that. And it's always interesting to hear what Chris Teague has to say about cars. Chris, thanks so much for being with us as co-host again this week. You have flattered me yet again, and I hope that everyone listening had a great time. And if you like what you heard, I will ask, as I always do, hit like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. That will help us continue to grow and hopefully bring more people along for the ride. That would be terrific. And if you like the show, please pass it along to a friend. Uh, if Everybody who listens passes it along to just one person. I think we double our audience somehow, and that's good for us. I think good for America on the Road, and uh, we appreciate that. So thanks for doing that. Uh, please check out my book, uh, The GR Factor, Unleashing the Undeniable Power of the Golden Rule. It is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever you buy books. Uh, support your local bookstore if you can, of course. And uh, again, thanks to Chris Teague for being with us. Thanks to Mercury Insurance for helping to sponsor the show. And most of all, thank you for listening to America on the Road. It means a lot to us, and we appreciate it. So join us again next time for another edition of America on the Road. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at mercuryinsurance.com. And if you're looking to save money when you buy a new car, go to drivingtoday.com. It's the official website of America on the Road.